Welcome to our Social Impact, brought to you by the Prison Scholar Fund that has a mission of providing education and employment assistance to help incarcerated people succeed and thrive in society while avoiding homelessness and the revolving door of incarceration. As a nonprofit, we rely on investments, board members, and volunteers. So please connect with us. Visit our website, prisonscholars.org. Send us an email at info at prisonscholars.org. You can find volunteer opportunities, learn about becoming a board member, and make an investment on our website. You can also make an investment through Patreon, where you can find us at Prison Scholars. Without further ado, welcome to the next episode of our Social Impact. Thanks for joining us. Today we have Jonathan McGee, and I met him through a Just Leadership Education Program, or I guess Leadership Development Program. So tell me, Jonathan, how did you uh, end up there, and where you work on today? So, uh, you know, Dirk's being very modest. Um, I think we would have met, you know, even before that program because the work he's doing is very important, and the work that I do is very important. And so, um, originally from the South Side of Chicago, we're actually at my home. We're filming on um, location that I grew up in, uh, but uh, originally from Inglewood. Which, if anyone knows about Inglewood in Chicago. Um, it's one of the most violent neighborhoods um, in the city, next to Roseland, Austin, um, North Lawndale, Humboldt Park. And what we found is, is that in a lot of areas like Inglewood, because of disinvestment, because of segregation, we've seen incarceration. We've seen, you know, the criminal justice system tear apart families. We've seen, you know, young men and women of color who truly have seen their opportunity cut short because of um, them being victims of their circumstance, right? And so for me... I, I moved back to Chicago because I wanted to figure out, number one, um, as someone who's had interaction with law enforcement before, as someone who uh, has a master's degree from George Washington and started a social enterprise and now teaches, um, understand that that reality didn't dictate my future. And so how, did I, how do I go back and help people in my neighborhood you know, have a second chance and have an opportunity? And so I saw the Just Leadership Program, man apply for it and wanted to get those skills and that network and those resources in order to go back to, to my neighborhood here in the South Side of Chicago and help individuals who've gone through similar things. I have cousins right now who both are incarcerated. Um, one cousin who's incarcerated for second degree murder, but he didn't kill anyone. He was with the wrong folks. I got another cousin who was indicted on bank fraud, but the, the similarities in both of those are family structure and, and my uncle who was their father also was incarcerated so you see you know the systematic um, issue of the criminal justice system in America and the messed up part about my cousin is he can't afford counsel so his public defender you know withdrew from his case because he pretty much said if you don't take the 13 years at 85% I'm done and it was at that time that I realized like man I didn't really know what to tell my cousin because you know you kind of got to keep yourself optimistic in that situation, but it's a tough situation to be in. And so the, for, for the listeners who don't know what 13 years at 85% means, what does that mean? So essentially, uh, if you, <laughs> let's say, you know, you do a crime, right? And they say, okay, we want to charge you, you know, we're going we're gonna to offer you, you're facing natural life. <laughs> okay, so, so if you get charged with first or second degree murder, the penalties in Illinois can be all the way up to natural life. I mean, we know that there's a spectrum. So their quote-unquote deal is we're going to offer you a sentence 
like 10 to 13 years, which is a lot, but then you're basically going to have to do that whole sentence. So 85% of that 13 years, so you're looking at about 10 years. You, can, you hear a lot of, I think that's how the criminal justice reform or the sentence, sentencing reform acts happen because people get sentenced in like Louisiana or Texas for 100 years and they do five. And so people want like truth in sentencing. So maybe that's where the, you're kind of doing really the, the sentence of what you're sentenced to. Well, 100%. It used to be a thing in Illinois called day for day, where if you did a day, you'd get a day. So you were only really doing 50%. Yeah, you didn't have time. Um, but that, yeah, I don't I got, think it exists anymore. Yeah, I got half time in California. They sentenced me to 10 as a first-time offender, so I got, I got half time. But if I ever went back to the same crime, then it's like they double the crime, and you get like a third off. Mm. So yeah, don't come back. <laughs> but I think they changed a lot of things in California recently. They have, they have. I think California is actually leading the way um, in a lot of this work. And and for me, um, as being in Chicago, I'm I'm paying attention and I'm looking because we're still so far behind in the Midwest. So it's interesting about Chicago because because before I got here and when I was researching my podcast, I saw that Joe Rogan podcast where they're talking about Chicago is the most violent city in the world, or I mean, probably in the United States. So. I was kind of curious how uh, how violent it really is here, and then maybe we can speak on that. And the second thing is, or at least like it seems like it's so crazy, at least on some statistical measures. How did you break free of it? So, so number one, let's let's talk about facts because unfortunately, Chicago has a bad reputation. Um, the media hasn't helped that. The president hasn't helped that. Uh, you know, and actually there's someone from Inglewood that I respect immensely to Mika Johnson who came up with the folded map project which shows you the disparity in the city so essentially if you fold the map right you can see the inequity but what she recently has been talking about is she's been going to the north side and asking kids at Northwestern and asking tourists and folks who only see one element of the city how many times have you been told not to go to the south side and the number is staggering because somehow the narrative has been, if you go to the south side, you're going to get shot. Well, we're on 81st and Western right now. We're down the street from 79th and Ashland. You know, again, my grandmother's lived on 71st and 8th for 40 years. She's never been shot. Now, Chicago's the third largest city in the nation, 2.7 million people. Naturally, you're going to have a lot of shootings and, and just by virtue of the, the population. We do have more homicides per capita than New York and L.A. combined. But when you look at places like Baton Rouge, when you look at places like Baltimore, which are way smaller but have such a high level of, of, of crime, we don't even scratch the surface for being the murder capital. And when you think about what, is, what does it mean to be the most violent? Like, okay, you're just thinking about gun violence? Or you think about... Yeah, I think they're know, talking about shootings. That was and they're talking about shootings. And so, yes, we have an issue here. But honestly, if you look at most violent, I would look at those those cities that are a lot smaller that are having a, a higher amount of homicides. Higher per capita. And Chicago, unfortunately, by design, is suffering from this from a lack of investment. Um, you know, poor educational resources. You know, in neighborhoods of color. Um, and yeah, yeah. I, I think that's actually one of his points because when you look at the demographics of Chicago, and uh, as as far as many, how many black people in the north and I mean black people in the south and white people in the north it's kind of like it's not a real priority for investment because they just like hey it's the south side just let them shoot each other let me put it to you this way you're not staying in a hotel but if you were to stay in any major hotel downtown up north or by the airport they'll give you a map and you'll look at the map and guess what the map cuts off at the McCormick place <laughs> really so you know what that tells me that tells me that 
the institutions in this city, the tourism in this city, does not value the south side of Chicago. How do you cut off the whole city? But it's beautiful down here, and I, I think there's a lot of uh, Frank Lloyd Wright buildings. Listen, the south side is actually very beautiful. There's so many great parts of the south side, but again, when you think about the investment, so I'll give you another example. TIF funds, right? Here, Washington came up with TIF funds you know, back in the, in the in when he was in office, and it was meant for the south and west sides. Virtually no TIF funds actually come to the south and west sides now. So in Chicago, we have, you know, a corruption issue. In Chicago, we have a machine issue. We have, you know, a segregation and an equity issue and a class issue. And what do you mean by machine issue? When I say a machine issue, it's no, it's no secret that if you look at our history, uh, you know, we've had many politicians. We've had, you know, many people who have been in leadership that have abused public trust and abuse public dollars. Um, and and that's when, you, when you speak of politicians, what's your stance on Bobby Rush? <laughs> well, <laughs> do you want to dive into that? I'm not going to make any political statements, <laughs> but I, I think for me, at the end of the day, what we do know is that leaders who've been in office have been there far too long. Um, as someone who aspires to one day run for public office myself, uh, I find it frustrating because you know, we need new ideas. We need individuals who are going to have leadership for the next generation. And that's just not the case uh, right now because, you know, the Gen X, Gen Y generation pretty much got skipped over, um, you know, as a result. Now you've got the millennials and the other young folks trying to find ways to get into leadership. And so you've been here and you succeeded, George Washington. So... Tell oh, me, so, so to your point, how did, I, how did I succeed? Well, I, you know, I can't. It's not so grim down here. Once you're actually down here, it's beautiful and nice. <laughs> There's brick houses and manicured lawns. Um, you know, and, and trust me, Chicago's in pockets. So, yeah. like I said, we can walk down the street and we'll get a little real. But um, <laughs> um, my mother. Um, so my mom was very instrumental in my in my success. You know, my grandparents are Belizean. Um, they have green cards. Um, they, you know, we're, we're, we're in Englewood as well. But... You know, my mom really made sure that education was important to me. So early on in, in Chicago, you know, when I went to high school, I went to Lane Tech, which was up north on Addison and West. So for me, I saw early the inequity. And it wasn't the tale of two cities, but the tale of four. And you're paying attention to this at that time. And I was paying attention to it. And you see on my shirt, I, I got critical. Um, this is actually a clothing line that I started to let folks know on the south and west sides that our situation is critical. We have to have a critical perspective on all these issues. So to your point, you know, at that moment, it was critical for me to understand that, hey, there's more to not just Chicago, but to life and to the world than just the south side. So then went to Western Illinois University. is a small town, you know, small town in the cornfields in Illinois. And that was when I realized the reality of what we were facing in our criminal justice system. It's the first time I'd ever been arrested for weed, which is going to be legal now. Every single time I was arrested, it was for marijuana, which is going to be legal now. And it's been on my record. I didn't get a political appointment with the Obama administration for smoking weed. And oh, so, oh, did you try for his campaign? No, I was, I was awarded an appointment. I oh, really? interviewed. I was going to be one of the youngest political appointees in the Obama administration. Tell and me, didn't make it through the vetting process. Tell me about that. Uh, you know, I was working on Capitol Hill, and it was a dream for me to be able to work for um, the first black president from Chicago. And being from the South Side, you know, that was what I wanted to do. Um, and I got the job. 
So, you know, I think that kind of leads me to, you know, what I'm doing right now, the Global Organization for Applied Political Leadership. I started Goal with the idea that we need to equip communities of color, people who are most impacted by these policies, some of the folks that you know, have been traditionally disenfranchised from the public policy and advocacy process with the skills, the toolkits, the strategies, and the tactics to move the needle on policies that affect them most. So if you think about it, right, if it's bail and bond reform, if it's juvenile justice, if it's criminal justice, the folks that are most close to the issue are the closest to the solution. We know this. That's your story, Dirk. And yet, individuals either don't have the know-how or they don't have the resources of the infrastructure and the network. How do we create that? Yeah, you talked about bond reform just a minute ago. So Chicago did something really cool with that. So, so Chicago's working on that. You've got the Chicago um, you know, bond uh, you know, organization that right now is working on trying to restore um, you know, people's right and, and, and right to innocence before they're adjudicated. And so, you know, I think to me, that is the type of stuff that we need to be focused on. And so we've got organizations that are raising money right now. And so uh, the Chicago Community Bond Fund is leading that work. Um, and what's interesting is, you know, we're also seeing Kim Fox, the Cook County State's Attorney, leading a lot of work um, in Cook County jails, which, we, you know, is one of the largest jails in the nation. And now they just restored voting rights for, you know, a lot of folks that are in Cook County Jail. So, again, to that civic engagement piece, how do we equip the most vulnerable amongst us and the folks that have been most impacted with the right to position their government? Because that is our right. So if you're you're currently incarcerated, you can vote. So if if you're currently in Cook County Jail now, it's it's nuanced. So so I think it's nonviolent felons right now. So if if you're nonviolent... Um, felon, if you're currently in Cook County, um, you can vote. But now, I think folks that are felons for violent crimes, I think right now still can't vote, but that's still a win. It's still a win because, again, you know, these were, these were disenfranchised people. Yeah. At what point do you lose your citizenship if you have a felony? I mean, you said at what point? <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I think immediately. I mean, <laughs> once, you're, once, you, once you are given a felony, um, and it was funny because I was watching a um, show with Killer Mike and T.I., the rapper, and um, what is it, Candace Moore. And what Killer Mike said was, listen, there's always going to be somebody at the bottom. And if it isn't black poor people or, you know, Hispanic poor people or people of color, it's going to be incarcerated folks. And that, to me, blew my mind because someone's got to be at the bottom. So when you say what the issue is here in this country, we have a class issue. You know, we have a race issue, but we have a class issue. It's the haves and the have-nots. Where do you fall? Some would say, oh, I fall in the middle, but do you? Do you? Right now, you know, me and you, we're struggling to try and, you know, have a social impact. That's the name of this podcast, our social impact. But yet, when we sit in front of the people who say, you know what, I'm committed to this. We don't see the money. We don't see the resources. And so we're left to our own devices. And so for me, you know, I think it's important that we understand how to make this system and how to make these sectors work for us. Because we got the short end of the set. Not them. Right on.
So, you know, uh, for me, I'm a young guy. So, you know, I, I'm just trying to figure out at what point do we get institutions, whether that's philanthropic institutions, government, the private sector, to coordinate, collaborate, and communicate better. Now, are you, how, how does the partnership look for your goal? Tell me about that. So goal is, you know, we've seen success. So we did our first training in D.C. Uh, we raised $8,000. We trained over 60 folks. We did our second training here in Chicago and Inglewood. Trained over 60 folks. Had policymakers. Um, you know, again, raised about $6,000. And we recently did an event with the United Nations on the global impact of firearms on local communities. Really? Yes. Um, and, and what do the trainings look like? What do you... So, so the trainings basically are full-day trainings. And the model really focuses on, you know, education, translation, and activation. So we first educate people around issues. So number one, you know, how do you understand this? Because before you can advocate, you need to, to really be able to understand it, then translate it. This is very complex stuff. Again, this is stuff that wasn't designed for the people that we're teaching. And so really helping people, you know, get this and, and digest it and make it palatable for everyday folks. And then we can activate them. And that's really giving them those strategies. So is it an op-ed? You know, is it a fundraising or grassroots advocacy campaign? Is it a coalition? Is it a digital strategy? You know, how do you leverage all of these skills to ensure that your issue gets on the agenda? And then once it's on the agenda, that doesn't even mean it's going to get done. So what we focus on at Goal is a commitment to the process, not the outcome. For a long time, we're so outcome focused these days that we don't understand that, listen, it's the process. Your organization, if you're focused on all these people, you want folks to be exposed and see what education can do for them when society has basically thrown them away for a mistake that they made, whether it was a bad decision, whether they grew up in a bad environment, no matter what it is. If it's the Department of Corrections, if we're talking about rehabilitation, then we need to be ensuring that these folks are set up for success. Yeah, that's a really important point. Like, you can't guarantee an outcome, but you can guarantee opportunity. That's it. You know, everybody likes to talk about, well, talent is distributed evenly, but opportunity is not. That is true, right? That is true. But in Chicago, I get sick of people saying that because we're not doing anything about it. We know that if you have a different view, a different perspective, a different idea, a different skill set, that you're of value. Yeah, and we're not all equal, but we should have equal opportunity. Like, I can't jump six feet in the air. And, and, you know, I, the equality thing, it's equity, man. And I'm going to give you uh, uh, an analogy. So, the best way to think about DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion, um, is like a restaurant. So, let's say you go to a restaurant. <laughs> let's say we, we go to Krispy Kreme, right? And Krispy Kreme's like... We just want different customers. That's diversity. I, I just want different customers. Inclusion's like, Dirk went and got his coffee, got his apple fritter. How did he feel? Did he feel good? Did he feel like this was a place that you know I needed to be? That's inclusion. Equity is, you know what? I got a problem. I don't like my coffee was cold. The donut. I, you know, I want to talk to the manager. You know how this whole operation. Do I have a say in that? And the reality is, is, a lot of times you don't. Because what equity is, is that everybody has, you know, the ability to influence how that organization, institution operates. They want a seat at the table. 
But even that, right? Like, it's, it's so interesting because we got all these buzzwords now. We need a seat at the table. Having a seat at the table doesn't guarantee anything. Yeah. What we really need is folks out here doing what we're doing, building our own tables, building our own infrastructures. If this is America and folks talk about competition, why am I trying to fight and claw and scratch to get you to see what's already right? I'm just going to get the folks that are out here doing the work. We're going to build a coalition. We're going to get together. And we're going to say, you know what? Because they're not listening, we're going to raise our own funds. We're going to build our own movements. We're going to, we can do, we have social media, we have podcasts, we have newspapers. How do we apply the pressure so that politicians and these institutions move? The old saying goes, if they feel the heat, they'll see the light. So how do we make them feel the heat? And that's what I do with the Global Organization for Black Political Leadership, is teach people how to make whoever they feel needs it feel the heat. So this is really amazing. It's like you're on fire. You're doing all these changes. You know it's critical. <laughs> and it's I'm, always critical. It's like, I, I need to, I'm going to have a shirt. So oh, yeah. We got, we got a shirt for you downstairs. Okay, you, yeah. can buy one. We'll, 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 you can buy one right now before yeah. you walk out. And give me the link to it. We'll post it. So you want to, what, what's the link for it? So, so actually, right now, we just have our Instagram page. We're working on a website. But um, the website is coming soon. But it's CP Clothing Shy um, on Instagram. Like um, S-H-Y or C-H-I for Chicago? So, Chi, C-H-I. Everyone <laughs> knows there's no Y in Chicago. Uh, except for the fact that it's after wind, because we're the Windy City. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah, no, but but to tell you all what critical means, because it's, it's an acronym, is, you know, create, replicate, implement, teach, innovate, calculate, apply, live. And if you think about the most important piece of this, it's calculation. If you think about it, we're all creating things, we're all replicating things, but to be calculated is what we're trying to figure out here. How do we apply the right pressure? How do we create the right message? How do we help funders understand the importance of helping people who are incarcerated finish school? How do we help you know funders and organizations understand that everybody has the right to petition our government, even those that um, are, are the lowest among us or in prison or in jail? Everybody has that right, just like we like to talk about the Second Amendment. Guess what the First Amendment does? Say you have the right to petition your government. We didn't even teach civic education in schools forever. So, again, systemically, it wasn't designed for these people to participate. And when I say these people, I mean folks like myself, people that are incarcerated, individuals who just traditionally don't understand and have been disenfranchised from the system. So i got to say that I met you through the Just Leadership USA program, which is an amazing curator of talent from across the country, formerly incarcerated, system-impacted people. Um, but of course, you, uh, your time there got sh- cut short a little bit. You want to? So, 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 you know, I don't want to diss. Yeah, 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 we, yeah we I don't want to diss. You know, no organization. But this is what I will say, and I want to make this very, very clear for all organizations and, and leadership institutions that are looking for um, lived experience people like ourselves. The reason why you want us is because we're out doing great things. And in this day and age, we all know competing priorities are real. We all know that there's only so much that can be on the agenda at one time. And so what I really want to see organizations do is commit to helping to provide an infrastructure, resources, and a network for civic leaders across this nation, social impact leaders across this nation, 
you know, you may be able to make everything, you may not, but I wasn't able to make all of the workshops and so had to, to, to move out of the program. But again, I don't want to diminish what I gained from it. And I don't want to diminish the fact that the only reason this is happening is because of that. But to your, your question, we need to realize that everybody needs to be supporting every supporting each other. Adam Grant, he's the youngest senior business professor at the Warden School of Business. He wrote a book called Give and Take. He talks about reciprocity. He also has a podcast called The Work Life. His whole idea is that how do we facilitate a culture of reciprocity in the social, civic, and professional sectors and private sectors? So what is, does he answer his own question? Yes. Um, he talks about three different types of people in the world, givers, takers, and matchers. Um, we know what takers are. You know, we know what givers are, matchers are. You know, you do something for me, Dirk, I'm going to do something for you. My question for you is, who do you think are the most successful? Most of us fall in the mattress category. And you would think mattress, everyone likes uh, reciprocity. Givers are both the most successful and least successful. Why? They give it all away or they're super generous? If you give it all away, you get exploited, right? Yeah. But if you say, hey, I'm going to give to the prison, you know, fun. I'm going to give to JLUSA and my family. <clears throat> You're putting parameters on your giving. So the whole idea is that if we all were get like, viewed ourselves as givers, right, who were able to put parameters on their giving, then we'd all be more effective and efficient because the reciprocity, right, we all can do something for someone. It's about why should I? Yeah, you're waiting for that, that you know? unbound contract. Right? Like, we were just talking about raising money. The question is, why should I give you money? Right? Like, and we all have a reason and a justification, but what I'm learning is that that's always at the root of everything is the why even before you get to the how it's the why and so for me um what i focused on with goal and what i focused on with this work and what i focused on you know my whole career is how do we create a network of leaders who can amplify each other's impact and still make a case for funders and organizations that it's worth it because Guess what? If anything, if you don't believe in my work, you can believe in this network of leaders, which to me is why what you're doing is so important, because you're literally building an infrastructure from the ground up of advocates, of lived experience people that eventually will be able to contribute back to the organization, but first they're going to contribute to society. Right on. So what's next for you? Are you blow up goal a little bit more? And when's your so process? so I want to scale goal. Um, I want to do four trainings in four different cities next year um, quarterly. So you know, in a, in about two or three weeks, I've been just kind of juggling around. About two or three weeks, I'm going to begin the planning process for um, the next training. I want to do it in New York. So let's dig a little bit into your organization. Uh, where's the funding come from? Are they foundations? So so I've gotten funding from a little bit of everywhere. Um, I was telling you know you earlier that I think right now people are investing in me. So for my training in D.C., we had Pepco support us. We had campaigns and elections support us. State and federal support us. Um, we had a variety of, of big organizations. CQ Roll Call um, in Chicago. We had the Urban League support, Chicago Neighborhood Initiatives, Chicago Community Trust, McCormick Foundation. But again, a lot of that was you know through my own relationships and networks. And so with the UN now. Um, and so what I'm trying, and I'm a social enterprise, so I'm not a nonprofit. So that's the other thing. Gotcha. When we think about social impact, social innovation, we're really much in this space where you don't necessarily have to be a nonprofit to do social good. Just because you're for profit doesn't mean you can't be for public. 
what I'm learning is we also need to cultivate entrepreneurs within our space. And I think there's this idea that we're supposed to do everything just free or we're just supposed to tell our story, which is why I believe in social enterprises. Because guess what? You're a consultant on these issues. You have an expertise and a skill set that can be sold. And, you know, I think there's this, like, negative view on money and making money. But guess what? Again, if I can make money and do social good, I've, I've, I've hit the jackpot. And I think that with advocacy, whether it's companies, nonprofits, foundations, whatever, everybody has a civic duty. What that looks like for them is on them. I just want to make sure you have the skills and the understanding and the knowledge and the toolkit. So for goal, we're going to expand our diversity and, and advocacy training programs. I've applied for the Camelback Fellowship, um, which is $40,000 in venture funding um, that I'm trying to apply for. I would encourage you to start applying for these fellowships across the nation because there are people who are trying to support, you know, um, innovative social entrepreneurs like ourselves. And so, you know, I, I like I said, I'm continuing to consult um, in the youth empowerment space. I think what we're seeing with this climate work with the youth, we can do the same thing in juvenile justice, criminal justice. We just got to build the network. We just got to build the coalitions and it's going to fall on us, but it's worth it. So you mentioned youth and entrepreneurs a couple of times. Do you do you see the the youth coming into society these days as more entrepreneurial? Well, well, they all want to be entrepreneurs. The problem is, is again, what I tell you, they don't know the how, man. It's most Gen Z. Yeah, how do you teach something like entrepreneurial spirit? That seems like is that a, is that a so shameless plug? Uh, yeah. So Future Founders, um, the Gray Matter Experience. These are two organizations here in Chicago that are leading this work. They believe that, number one, every youth can be an entrepreneur, and then the Great Matter Experience believes that youth of color from lower socioeconomic areas can be social entrepreneurs to help change that community themselves. So, appetite's there. Skills, resources, education, understanding's not. So what you do is, is you start going into these schools and introducing them to entrepreneurial concepts and helping them understand what it means and, and, and to think about business and money and revenue and pitch competitions and helping them get comfortable in having a product and thinking about how to make money. So for me, number one, it's the confidence and the understanding to know that you can do it. Most entrepreneurs I knew necessarily weren't legal entrepreneurs, not like drugs and stuff. I mean, like they did hair, they did sold stuff on the side, but it wasn't an actual incorporated or legal entity. And guess what that is? That's initiative with no support. That's, that's, that's proactivity with no infrastructure and that's you know innovativeness with you know um no organization and no you know network behind you um and we need to change that we know again if we're going to talk about the talent and the experiences that it's everywhere it's in jails it's it's in our our most vulnerable communities but we need to hone that and harness that and invest in that i mean look Dirt, honestly, man, I, I'm, I'm looking at your lead. I'm looking at leaders all across the nation. And I'm just trying to figure out what makes the most sense. Um, but what I do know is I've got something good. I've got something that people believe in. And I just need to, to keep on pushing, man. And, you know, I'll put it to you this way. Vera Wang didn't become a famous wedding dress person until she was 40. So she made dresses for her entire life. 
um, before she was able to, to actually, you know, get big time. Um, you know, I think some of the most influential leaders and some of the most effective entrepreneurs had to struggle and had to grind out. And that's where I think we are right now. And I think that the difference, though, between where they were and where we are is there's a lot of opportunity in terms of people are paying attention to this. Um, how, but, do you, how do you teach the grind? What they say, uh, you know, without no struggle, there's no progress. Without no hardship, you know, it's our resilience, man. Dirt. You know, I don't know if I can speak for you, but when you go through things, uh, I was going to just say, when you go through shit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you're good. You know, it creates this level of resilience and persistence and consistency in you that is not in anyone else. Because if you can get out of the situation you was in, you can do anything. Dude, you went to Stanford. I didn't even go to Stanford, right? <laughs> like, you can do anything. So that is where I think our grit and our grind come from. So if you haven't experienced hardship, if you hadn't had to test your faith, if you hadn't had to be resilient, if you hadn't had to be persistent, um, then it's going to be tough because you don't understand what it's like to see the window of opportunity close. I know what it's like to be fired from a job. I know what it's like to be, not get a political appointment. I know what it's like to be arrested and have to do some time in jail. I know about all those things. It's, it's, it's for me, um, it's, the, it's the climb, it's the journey, man. It's, it's, it's the process. And, you know, that's what makes us unique. That's what makes leaders in JLUSA unique. That's what makes everybody who has had to know what it's like to go and sit in a jail cell. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, that's that's yeah. when you have time to think. Right through. Dude, I, I'm never going to forget. And I was in Macomb. Oh, yeah. Tell, tell us about your experience in jail. and what. Took well, you, you know, it was a brief stint. Yeah. I'm not going to. I, I don't even tip the iceberg when it comes to, <laughs> you know. Uh, Dirk and some of the other leaders that just, you, you just had a little time out basically right but it was enough of a time out for me to realize that you know I needed to do something differently so for me when I was in Macomb in college you know it was a predatory experience because again you have a town that's you know generating revenue off the fact that um, you know people are in college and that it's a small town they can make money in. So, college town. Yeah, and they, and they would target they would target a lot of people of color from the inner cities because they understood that, you know what, that's the type of environment that we can generate revenue on. So for me, I didn't understand that. There was no resources, there was no one who prepared me for that. And I think as a result, you know, I fell prey to it. And so for me, um, it wasn't until the third time I got in trouble that I realized that, like, wow, they're actually getting serious about this. <laughs> and you're talking about petty offenses. Yeah. They mean like, they were trying to make me do, like, 30 days in jail. It was crazy. For a little bit of weed. Exactly. For a joint. <laughs> 30 days. So I ended up having to do two weekends. And what I learned from that was, number one, the most humiliating thing is to change out of your clothes into their clothes. You know, you realize for the first time when they put you in there to give you a blanket and a little mat, you don't even get a pillow because you realize some guys have made makeshift pillows, but and a roll of toilet <laughs> and you just you, you go in and then they close the door. <laughs> okay, all right, let's, all right. this is all fun now. It's time to go, and it's like no, I'm sorry, can I go home now? <laughs> and then you know the the lights go off, and then the lights come on, and then. 
you know, the food is trash, and, you know, you might get pizza on Friday, and, you know, for me, I was lucky enough, I was doing weekends, so then they would let us out, and then, you know, you'd get out, and you would just realize, like, you would want to kiss the ground, because I couldn't imagine being in there for as long as my cousin has, or as long as you had, or as long as a lot of people have, and so when we think about, again, that resilience piece, you really don't know what you're capable of, capable of until you're put in that situation. And you really don't know what you can achieve and what you can get through until you have to. And so, you know, while my experience was, was milder than most, it was enough. Just because someone was incarcerated, again, doesn't mean they can't be top of your class and doesn't mean that they don't have the skills to actually succeed there. Because if that was true, you wouldn't be sitting here on this podcast in front of me. And that is the message we need to let folks know. You know, look... They're running into scandals for letting rich people into school right now. What we're saying is, is let somebody who's actually, you know, spent way more than money have an opportunity. I love it. Let's do it. So, this has been awesome, man. Jonathan McGee, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, brother. You're awesome. Can't wait to see what you do.